Hi, this is Daniel Jepson, and you're listening to the podcast, Your Word is a Lamp. This episode is focused on the name Jesus, based on Matthew chapter 1, and this was preached at Franklin Community Church on January 20th, 2020. I hope it's a blessing to you. Uh, We are going to turn now to our scriptures, and we will celebrate with carols after the sermon. But I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 1. And the scriptures read this. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open it to our minds. Help us to celebrate the person of Jesus, because we understand more fully the meaning of the name and the meaning why you gave him this name. Father, would you show us how deeply we each one need to be saved from our sins still? Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, um, I'm not really, I don't think much of a, of a counselor, There are so many people who are more gifted and trained in that than I am. But I'm told that uh, one of the things counselors do, and one thing that's helped me as I I have done some limited counseling, is this. When you meet someone new, the key, really, to understanding how to help this person is making the distinction between the presenting issue and the real issue, or the presenting problem and the real problem. Now, what's, what's meant by that? And, and by the way, that's not just in, a, in counseling. It's also something in medicine. So if you go to the doctor and you say, I have a headache, well, there could be a lot of causes for that. And if all you do is treat the headache, when there might be something much deeper and such, something much worse that needs to be dealt with, you're just dealing with the presenting problem and not the real problem. And so in counseling, someone might come and say, well, I have... I'm struggling with an addiction to pornography, or I'm struggling with uh, substance abuse, or I'm struggling with depression. These things, or sleeplessness, these things are the presenting problem, but the real problem is going beneath that and saying, what's causing these things? What's causing these things? So in the same way, there's a difference going beyond that in our lives and even in the lives of our culture as a whole, between the presenting problem and the real problem. Or what we think is the deepest problem and issue of our life, 
and what is really the deepest issue and problem of our life. And I see that when we talk about the name Jesus. I see that as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 1, that we're going to explore just a little bit centered around this name of Jesus. So we're going to do a couple things here. First of all, let's just explore what this name means. And a couple things right off the bat here. First of all, the name Jesus is the same name as the name Joshua. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, it would have been pronounced in the Hebrew. So if you're going to pronounce Joshua, the name back 1,000, 2,000 years before Christ, Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And in Jesus' time, it would have been pronounced Yeshua, but written as, and that's actually an I there at the beginning. Um, looks like an L because, you know, the I's in the uppercase I in my in my type anyway, translates into that. So in Greek, it would have been written as Jesus. Uh, but in any case, the name means Yahweh saves. might be worth just a digression to see this a little bit more. Uh, we know that when a name goes from one language to another, it's going to usually change. And so, for example, in Greek, Johannan would be, or Johannes, would be Juan in, uh, in Spanish and John in English. Or this one's interesting, Ludwig in German is the same name as Louise in, uh, in French, or Louis, we might call it today. These, these are the same names. As, as you go from one language to another, the spelling changes. And that's especially true when you go from uh, one language to a different one in a totally different language group. So how does this work? All right. So here is the basic name in the Old Testament, Yehoshua. Now, Aramaic is a language that would, would have been spoken by the people of Jesus' time, the Jewish people, very closely related to Hebrew. So you can see there's not much of a change here. Uh, and if you transliterate that, so you just take the letters themselves, put them in English from that, you get the name Joshua. But this same name, if you put it in Greek, so the New Testament is going to be written in Greek. So when it's written, it's going to be written in these Greek letters. And guess what? Uh, the Greek letters, or the Greek language does not have a letter for H. So you're going to drop both of those. You're going to add an S because the male name in the Greek language and the nominative case is going to have an S. And then this Y is going to convert to um, this symbol here. Um, and then Old English, you have this. Interesting. Did you know the letter J was not written until the late 1500s and was not widely in use until much after that? Now, the sound was, but just like we have some letters today that make more than one sound, so this letter here, which would actually have a Y sound, uh, could also have a J sound. So it was after that, after 1670s, when the, the J letter became increasingly in use, uh, 1629 was the first version of the King James Bible to actually print it like this. All right. So all that's inter interesting digression for some of us, at least. The main point I want to get across by this is, is this. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. They come to us, they're spelling by a little bit different route just because of the history of language and, and translation, but they mean exactly the same thing. Jesus is the modern way that we would spell in our country, Yehoshua, and 
the main thing to keep in mind is that what the name means. Yahweh saves. So if you break this Yehoshua down, Yeho would be the, if you put a slash mark right there, this would be the shortened form of Yehovah, uh, and this would be Shua or sal salvation. means Yahweh saves. All right. So here's the question, though, that comes to mind. Saves from what? Jesus saves from what? And that's where we want to put a little bit of our thought. Because we, after 2,000 years of church history and in our own lives, knowing that Jesus saves us from our sins, we're going to come at this with, with this idea of salvation already formed in our minds. And it's a different concept of salvation than most people were expecting. And that's kind of the main thing I want to get across here, that Jesus has come to save us from our deepest problem, our deepest need, our sin even though sometimes we may not think that is our deepest problem at the moment. Now, that is certainly not what the Jewish people thought. The Jewish people of Jesus' time did have the expectation of a, of a Messiah, the one to come, of a Savior. Their expectation and their desire was for a military political leader who would save them, in first place, from Roman domination. Jewish, the Jewish land, the Jewish people were under the thumb of Rome. And at times, it was a very brutal thumb to be under. And, uh, and so the hope of so many people, if not most people at the time, was that someone would come, the Messiah would come and throw off Rome. And the, this desire is so entrenched that 40 years after Jesus' death, well, actually about 35 years, in 66, 67 AD, the Jewish people declared a revolt against Rome. Now, this was suicidal. They had no chance of this. And in fact, it led to the destruction of Jerusalem itself in 70 AD and the slaughter of tens, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jewish people. It was so ingrained in them, though, it, it went against almost rationality because anyone could see where this was going to go. So the expectation of the people was that the Messiah would come, the Savior would come, and he would save them from Rome. But more broadly, that he would fulfill all the prophecies about you know, Israel being strengthened and brought up as, as the chief among the nations and, and the peace and prosperity. So they, they viewed this in those terms. Now, again, as we looked at a week or two ago when we talked about the Messiah, Jesus will bring that time. But he comes in two stages because first, there's an inner problem that has to be dealt with before that external thing can come about. So expectation was that he would come, save his people from Roman domination and political and uh, economic weakness. The reality is what we see here. He shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, sometimes I wonder if we also are looking for the wrong kind of Savior in our day-to-day -day lives, right? We have problems. We have issues. We have struggles. We have relationship issues. We may have financial issues. We may have health issues or someone we love has health issues. We may have career challenges or some part of our life that we really don't like, that's really painful to us, that's really different than, than what we desire, 
And it's very easy to view God as the one who's supposed to fix that. As if his primary goal is to make our life better in the way that we sense it should be. We may fall into, in our own personal lives, the same trap they fell into as a nation, wanting and expecting the wrong kind of salvation. Well, he came to save his people from their sin. Let's explore this a little bit. Why? What, what is so bad about sin? We live in a culture that minimizes it, that rationalizes it. But really, it is at the heart of everything that's wrong with us individually, but also as a, as a society. Let's explore this a little bit. You should have these in your notes. If, uh, if you didn't get these, they're out there. One way to think about this is just to kind of think about what happens when mankind sins. And uh, so put us back in the story in your mind of Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to look there because I think we probably all have that idea in our mind. Adam and Eve are in this perfect place. And in this place, in this place, there are two trees. Both trees are very symbolic and very important. One tree is a tree of life. One tree is a tree of life that the man and woman eat from, and that gives them life. Now, was that a... Was that some kind of magical fruit? No, the idea was this. And this is a symbolism of the tree. The tree of life represented their receiving from God their life on an ongoing basis. The other tree was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree that God had told them one command, do not eat from that from the day, because on the day you eat of that, you will surely die. This was the only prohibition that God had put in this garden. And again, this wasn't a magic tree, like there was some sort of physical poison in here. The idea is this. This tree represented a revolt from God and his word, not trusting God in his word, but instead refusing their place as God's priests in his garden, his, as his representatives of an image of mankind on the earth, and instead choosing to side with the evil one in rebelling against God. All that's involved here. And when they chose to eat of that tree, they rejected the word of God and listened to the word of the evil one and followed him instead. And what happens? Did they die that day? Well, if I go out in the summertime and I cut off a branch from a tree, does it die that day? Yes. It doesn't look like it because there's still residual life in there, but it's not the life that was intended. And it will die certainly one day. In the same way, when Adam and Eve were cut off from the source of life because of their sin and expelled from the garden, their death was assured. It was just a matter of now how long, what the time frame is. But more than that, do you see the separation between them and God? Whereas before in the very picturesque words of, of the Bible, God walked with them in the cool of the day. Now they hid from God. More than that, they were, by judgment, expelled from the presence of God. And then right after that, so that's all in Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 4, you have one of their brothers murdering the other brother. So now you have sin not only dividing mankind from, from God, but mankind from each other. Reminder to us, as you, and you see this worked out in the next chapters after this, 
that all the sins of humanity are traced from this individual problem within us. So going back to this chart, what is sin? Breaking the law of God, our creator. It brings judgment and condemnation because we're guilty and therefore objects of God's judicial wrath. Second, sin is siding with the creator's enemy, which brings bondage. Romans 6 explores this idea that we are captives to Satan and slaves to sin. Third, it's rebellion against our creator, which brings alienation from God. We, are ma- we have made ourselves his enemy. And then finally, it is rejecting the kind of life the creator designed for us, which brings dysfunction, life not the way it's supposed to be, and death. We are not what we are created to be. This is our problem. All the other things in our lives are the presenting issues, but this is the problem that we have. You can imagine uh, if you heard from the doctor, you had some dreaded disease. I heard a guy, uh, heard a joke. Guy went to a doctor and doctor says, oh man, this is really bad. You know, looked at his x-rays and test results and well, you know, how long do I have? God says, 10. God says, what, 10 years, 10 months, what? Says, Nine, eight, seven. <laughs> what if you had, not, well, not 10 seconds, but what if you were new for certain that you would die within the next 10 weeks or the next 10 days? Would the problems that plague our mind shift in their preeminence before us? What if you knew you had 10 days to live or 10 weeks? Would the things that we place our thoughts on, the things we want to do, change? The way we handled our relationships change? If we knew we only had 10 days or 10 weeks? Would it not be the case, though, that maybe that should make us re-examine Because maybe we have 10 years and maybe we have 50, but we're all going to come to the place where our life in this body is gone. And if we are eternal beings, if this word is true, we will stand before Jesus Christ and we'll hear from him, either depart from me or well done, enter into the rest of the Lord. This is our problem. This is what keeps all of us individually and as a people from being what we should. Now, what does the cross do? Well, the cross brings justification. So justification means that because Jesus has paid the price as our penalty, the penalty has been paid, God can declare us innocent before him. And therefore, we do not have to be uh, judicially excluded from him. Second, it brings redemption and liberation. So again, these are words you would use of a slave, being redeemed, bought, and being liberated. Not only bought, but then set free to live the kind of life that they were meant to have. That's what God has done for us through the cross. Third, there is a reconciliation and adoption. See, this goes far beyond this. Justify just means that we don't have to face the penalty. Redemption, liberation, means that we are free from the forces that have oppressed us. Reconciliation and adoption go far beyond this, though. They have the idea that we are now so much at peace with God that he has actually even adopted us as his own sons and daughters. Wow. And then finally, transformation 
and glorification. The idea that we are changed inwardly to become more like Jesus Christ. And that after our death, we do not just sit in the ground and, and, and rot. We are placed as a seed out of which the mighty oak grows. We are changed. We are glorified. Paul says we will have a body like his glorified body. That's the gospel. That's what the cross does. And that's what Jesus came to do in our sin problem. Now, you'll notice here, this, there is a logical, I think, progression of this. It starts with justification. And I think it works its way out. But there's also, in a sense, it's not quite as clear, but there's also a temporal progression. We are justified in the past. We're, we're liberated and redeemed and reconciled and adopted. These have all happened in the past, but they're still working out in our day-to-day lives, right? So, in other words, we are still claiming more and more of this. I am the child of God. And, and there's a way I respond to that by living in that reality more and more. Glorification and tra- transformation is progressive, and glorification is, is after our death. It's in our future. So there is a, a progression here. And that's good to know because sometimes we may feel like one of two things, either like, well, I'm not what I should be, so I guess, you know, I'm just this messed up Christian or the gospel doesn't work. Or we may feel like, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good compared to other people, so I don't really need to grow spiritually. No, neither one of those are true. Um, and that's kind of where we're going to go to at this last part here. All right, application. Let's begin to wrap this up here. And then we'll turn to some carols celebrating the birth of this kind of Savior. Application. Remember, your deepest problem and my deepest problem is always related to sin. You shall give him the name Jesus because he will save you and save me from our sin. I like what D.A. Carson, the New Testament professor at Trinity, wrote. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. That is a beautiful thought.